My father has an old guitar and he plays me folk songs. My father has an old guitar and he plays me folk songs. There is nothing I want more than to play like him. He goes to the basement and builds me a cookie tin banjo. He builds me a cookie tin banjo. The strings are made of rubber bands. The strap is an old red necktie. The body is the big round lid of a metal cookie tin. When he plays his old guitar, I play my cookie tin banjo. I play my cookie tin banjo right along with him. Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, April 15, 2018. My name is James Marino and the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. With us today, we have a very special guest. Benjamin Scheuer is with us. Uh, Broadway fans know Benjamin because he's an American songwriter, performer, and playwright. He wrote and starred in the critically acclaimed one-man musical The Lion, which toured the U.S. and Europe from 2014 to 17, and won the 2015 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Solo Performance and the 2015 Off-West End Award for Best New Musical. Benjamin, thanks for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. Really appreciate it. You know, I've got a, a labradoodle puppy, and he needs to be up every morning early, so I'm, I'm up right and early every day. I'm glad to talk to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent to hear. So, um, Songs from the Lion. You have uh, your, your album debuted on the Billboard Top 10, and you've been doing it for a few years now. How it, has it evolved in the last, uh, you know, four years? I'm a much better guitar player after 500 performances, I think. I play a lot of different guitars in the line. There, there are seven guitars on stage. Uh, six of them I, I play, switch back and forth with their different tunings. Uh, the seventh is the understudy, you know, in case I break a string, and she's gotten to go on uh-huh. every now and again. <laughs> and, you know, after 500 performances all around the country and the, the world, I, I was ready to put the show to, uh, to rest. Uh, and then I got an offer that I really couldn't refuse. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society nominated me as their man of the year. Now, I, I, I'm a survivor of, of stage four lymphoma, of advanced stage cancer. And when the Lymphoma Society, I agree with this, this extraordinary thing, I thought uh, I'd like to honor them. And I thought I was going to, I'm going to play one final performance of the lion and give all of the money to the Lymphoma Society, Leukemia Lymphoma Society for for cancer research, and nothing would make me happier as, as someone whose life has been saved by this organization. Wow. That's great. And that's coming up uh, April 30th. Uh, tell us um, about that. How can folks get to uh, see this? Yes, it's Monday, April 30th. It's at 7 in the evening. It's at the Sheen Center on Bleecker Street. 
and people can get tickets at my website. It's Benjamin Scheuer. Uh, my last name is S-C-H-E-U-E-R, BenjaminScheuer.com. Uh, all the proceeds go directly to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Uh, and uh, something that people have done, which has been really lovely, is if folks are unable to make the performance, but they still want to contribute to this good cause, they've been buying tickets and then donating them. We have a whole list of students who want to see the show but are unable to pay the, the grown-up uh, charity prizes and who are eager for tickets. And so we'll, we'll make sure that those tickets get a good home and that money goes to a good cause. All right. Now, I noticed that... Um you have a song on your album called Cookie Tin Banjo. And oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, tell us about that. Did you actually uh, make a banjo out of a cookie tin? My father built me a cookie tin banjo when I was just about three years old. My father taught uh, he played the guitar, and I wanted so much to play just like him. And I would follow him around uh, miming the guitar and, and whenever he played his guitar I was fascinated and so he built me a little banjo out of a cookie tin lid and I was inseparable from this toy until huh. until about a year later when I was four when he got me a real a real instrument and a cookie tin banjo is the opening number in the song The Lion. There's also an animated music video for the song uh, made by the British animator and director Peter Bainton. And in fact, that, that video won Best best Animated Music Video at the British Animation Awards a few years ago. What a wonderful thing. Um, do you still have oh, this great. cookie tin banjo? You know, my we just sold the house that I grew up in, and we searched every corner of every uh-huh. you know, of every closet and attic, and I'm afraid... I'm afraid it has gone to the music gods. We could not yeah, find it. Yeah. In fact, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up outside of New York City in a town called Larchmont. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate, studied, studied English. And uh, I've been in New York City since 2005, uh, living, living in Greenwich Village and playing at playing at all the little all the little cafes, Cornelia Street Cafe. I was at a cafe Vivaldi on Monday night playing at the open mic. And I, I love going to open mics and trying out new material. I uh, on Monday at Cafe Vivaldi, I tried out two brand new songs: a song called "Hello Jemima." And a song called Silent Giants. And my, uh, I'm recently married. My wife and I, we actually met at the British Animation Awards. Look at uh, that. She's an illustrator. Yeah, it was great. See, these, these animated music videos have some worth. <laughs> <laughs> I think my, my, my mother wonders, what, what are they for? Uh, and, you know, I'm putting out those two tracks, Hello Jemima and Silent Giants, uh, later this month. There's actually a special edition vinyl. Uh, for people who are excited about uh, holding music in their hands. And since since Jemima herself is an illustrator, she did all of the artwork for the limited edition vinyl for Hello, Jemima and Silent Giants. It was pretty cool. Uh, it was great to, great to collaborate with her. Well, another exciting thing for you, Benjamin, is that you're featured in this uh, exhibit at the New York Public Library at Lincoln Center, uh, Bronwyn Sharp. Uh, a photographer has an exhibition called Portraits of American Playwrights. And you are there, a wonderful black and white portrait photos. Uh, you're there with such notables as John Logan, Susan Laurie Park, Sarah Rule, Lynn Nottage, Austin Pendleton, Lisa Crone, Coleman Domingo, and several others. That must be exciting on several levels, including the, the fact that, uh, I mean, to, 
to be called a playwright, which you certainly are, but I don't know if you necessarily would assign that uh, that that name to yourself. Well, I think something fascinating about that term is playwright. Right? Isn't R? Isn't W R I T E? It's it's right. Uh, it's I G H T W R I G H T. It's one who makes things. It's it's a struggle, and I think it's a really appropriate term. Uh, <laughs> it's it's an absolute. It's, it's a real thrill to be in that exhibit. Yeah, John Logan. I met John Logan, and there's a big poster of John's play Red. Uh, of Eddie, the actor Eddie Redmayne and the T-shirt that Eddie wore in red, right <laughs> next to a big poster of my show, The Lion, and the tie that I wore in The Lion. Now, Eddie Redmayne is one of my oldest and closest friends. And so uh, we went to high school together and did a lot of theater. Uh, when we were 16, we did Jesus Christ Superstar, and I played Judas, and Eddie played Herod. And so uh, I was with the, I was at this portrait exhibit at Lincoln Center, and I saw the picture of me right next to the picture of Eddie uh, in John in John Logan's play, and it felt. I, I, I took a photograph and I sent it to Ed, and I said, "Hey, you know, the six sixteen-year-old us would be so excited right now." Really? It, it was oh, it's such a joy. I went and and uh, and Chris Shin is in the exhibit, and uh, I got to meet I got to meet Chris the other day at the opening. I'm a big fan of his. Lucas Nath. I just saw his play Doll's House Part Two. You know, to be included among among these artists is a real honor, and the and the photos are really cool, and it's free to get in. Mm. Everyone can just wander into the public library in Lincoln Center and go, go check it out. So I celebrate Bronwyn's work. I, I was glad to be uh, one of the photographed few. And it's through May fifth, by the way. That's right. Yeah. This brings up a question: uh, What the hell's in the water in Larchmont? Mm. That too, hey. you know, uh, is it is it something in the water? Is it the school system? Is it the teachers? Is it the community? What what's going? That's awesome. My mother is a painter, and my father, though he uh, he wasn't a musician professionally, was a Sunday musician, and uh, there was always a lot of music in our house. The Beatles, uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane. I remember my dad. Took, we took our whole family to see uh, the 1991 revival of Guys and Dolls on Broadway with uh-huh. Nate Blaine yeah. playing Nathan Detroit, Peter Gallagher playing Sky Masterson. And, and I loved how stories were told through music and costume and images and sound. And so for me, working in animation or working in theater or making records or giving, giving rock and roll concerts. Like these are all different ways of telling the same story. And if I can do it to entertain people uh, and bring people a little bit of joy, you know, that's wonderful. When, when I was, when I was going through my chemotherapy back in 2011, art allowed me to take something bad and turn it into something good. And that's always been a central tenet of my philosophy as an artist. And so to be able to bring that background now and on the 30th of April, give this performance of the lion at the Sheen Center to, to give all the money back to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society through art, that fills me with great joy. It feels like all things are coming together. And whatever, whatever it was in the water at Larchmont, uh, I, I, I hope it's still there. Um, not to be unpleasant about uh, your illness or anything like that, but uh, can you tell us um, how you knew you were in trouble? Uh, did you have pains? Um, was it a rash? Was something happening that uh, made you say, I've got to go to the doctor? I was running through Grand Central Station and I slipped and fell. 
And uh, uh, the next day, I stayed in bed, banged up and bruised. And the following day, I went to my doctor, and he sent me for some x-rays. And uh, I sat down with him to discuss the results of these x-rays. And he said to me, he said, have you been sweating through your sheets at night? And I said, yeah. I thought this was quite strange. I didn't know how he would know that from looking at the mm, x-rays. Yeah. And he said, he said, um, uh, have you lost weight lately? And I said, yeah, I'd lost 25 pounds in the last oh. six months, which I thought was strange. But the trouble with New York City is people tend to tell you how great you look when you lose 25 pounds. In six yeah, months. yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, and then he asked me a question that I could not fathom how he knew. He said, do you have pain in the left side of your lower back when you drink alcohol? Wow. Mm. And, and, I, and he was, of course, he was absolutely right. This is a, a, a little-known symptom of Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he could tell that I had Hodgkin's lymphoma by looking at these, by looking at these x-rays and, and by the results of another test I had called the PET scan. Uh, and a, a PET scan is basically a CAT scan where you're injected with a radioactive isotope and it can track how fast your cells are growing. Cancer is a problem with, uh, with production. It's cells that grow far too quickly that, you know, grow 10 times the rate of healthy cells and kind of eat everything around them. Wow. And so my doctor was able to determine that I had, I had this illness and luckily cancer research has made such great strides lately and Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of the types of cancers that the medical community has really worked out how to, how to cure. Uh, and particularly now, something that, that doctors are making extremely wonderful strides on is a new form of cancer treatment called immunotherapy, which uses the body's own immune system to battle cancer. So rather than cutting it out, blasting it out with radiation, or poisoning it out, where you hope that the poison kills the cancer before it kills you. Scientists can now train the human immune system to cure cancer. And this is something that the Leukemia Lymphoma Society has been really important in supporting. Uh, And so it's saved lives. It's made lives better for the patients, also for the family members of people who are ill. And that's, that's one of the reasons that it's, it's an important cause for me to, to celebrate. Yeah. Does the threat ever go away? I mean, are, are there times that you really worry about it? Does it happen every day, once in a while, that you think about it could come back? Oh, yeah. I mean, logically, I know that, that I am as statistically likely to get cancer as as anybody who hasn't had cancer now, and that's really lovely. But like emotionally, oh, yeah, man, it's still there all the time. Every time I get a bad cold, I wonder if it's come back. But to, to be... I try to put that back into my song. Sure, I try to sure, take those, those sure. fears, which feel really sort of like frightening and personal. Sure. And maybe if I write about them, someone else who feels the same fear will say, hey, you know, I, I feel that maybe they won't feel so totally alone. So these uh, these songs that you have written and the show that you have written, The Lion is is evergreen that crosses all languages and cultures, and in fact, you've been able to play it around the world. Uh, for listeners who haven't seen The Lion, give us uh, a little synopsis of, of that. The Lion is structured as a piece of traditional music for you, but it's presented as a coffee shop gig. So it's one person on stage with guitars, singing croaky style songs, telling stories. I, I, I play this character called Ben, 
my, my autonomous character. And it's really a show about how do we become ourselves. Uh, in the show, I talk a lot about my relationship with my dad, who died when I was a little boy. Uh, I, talk, I talk a little bit about how I, how I got to where I am as a musician. And I talk about, in some pretty serious detail, what it was like for me to be sick. And I, I try to do it. I try to tell the truth and make it rhyme. That was John Lennon's advice when, about songwriting. He said, tell the, tell the truth and make it rhyme. So I had a great songwriting teacher named Laurie White, uh, who unfortunately uh, we lost earlier this year to cancer. And Laurie's songwriting advice to me was, Ben, you want to write a good song? Write what you don't want other people to know about you. You want to write a great song? Write what you don't want to know about yourself. Mm-hmm. And I have endeavored to take Larry Wayne's advice every day that I sit down to write. Do you just to clarify? Do you mean the same Larry White who who has been on Broadway? Uh, La- Laurie White, L A R I. I don't know if she's been on Broadway. Laurie's uh, was perhaps best known as a as a country songwriter. Uh, Green Eyed Soul was was her. Her, her moniker. And yes, she, I, she, I, I'm sorry. She was in Ring of Fire, I guess. Yeah. Uh, oh, I was guess she? she? I, didn't, yeah. I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah, and then she did some, um, you know, some concert uh, gigs like uh, Broadway Town Hall things, and she would sing musical theater and got to yeah. hear her several times. She was really, oh, did you? really wonderful. Yeah, yeah. She's an extraordinary lady. It was a real tragedy to lose her. I studied with her and Andrew Lippa and Hank Cornelia at the Johnny Mercer songwriting workshop. And I learned, I learned a lot from those, those three fine writers. The Johnny Mercer songwriting workshop is a yeah. songwriting workshop for writers ages 18 to 30. And they take 15 writers a year and they pay you money to go on my songs. It's hosted at the, at the um, campus at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. And I was there in 2010. I was one of the writers. And some Tassik and Paul have gone there. Uh, Alan Schmuckler, Sam Wilmot, Gene Rowe, Heather Robb, Shana Taub, the writers of my generation who I, whom I most admire, whose work I most admire. Lynn Manuel has, has been a guest teacher there. Uh, for all young songwriters listening, I really recommend apply to the Johnny Mercer Songwriters Workshop. It, uh, it'll, it'll change your life. That's a, that's a huge program. I mean, Northwestern has had such an impact upon musical theater. Uh, they, you know, consistently put out through their WAMU uh, program lots of really good things. And they're actually having a, uh, a big fundraiser very soon. I think it's this week or next week. All right. Yeah. So, uh, Benjamin, let us let you run. I, I want to leave uh, our listeners with some lyrics that you have here. If you try to stand tall, but you slip and fall in the earth is the sound of the stars. Truth gets revealed when you're broken and healed. Every heart is made stronger by scars. Uh, that, that means so much to so many people. And uh, the impact that you've had on so many others is evident in what you're doing on April 30th. Uh, raising money for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in New York. Uh, Benjamin Schur can be found uh, at his website at benjaminschur.com. We'll have a link to that and on Twitter at Benjamin Scheuer. Uh, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for calling in. 
Thanks for having me and have a great day, guys. You too. When you're broken and healed, every heart is made stronger by scars. It's not how long the rain falls or how hard the wind blows or how deep is the snow in the road. Nor the balance we fake when we feel the ground shake and we think that our world will explode. It's the hell that we give, it's the love that we live, it's our pride in the friendships we form. It's the courage we show, facing things we don't know, it's the way that we weather the storm. So go on your journeys, be bold and be brave. Be lions, my boys, and be strong. And when it is such that it all feels too much, then remember the words to the song. It's not well, it how seems that uh, our three calendars have been aligning more and more as uh, Michael, Peter, and I got a chance to see the same performance of Carousel. Peter, why don't you start us off with this? Well, truth to tell, this was a... Uh, a revival in which I was hearing not such good things over the last few weeks. And um, much of the criticism was the fact that there were cuts in the show. Everybody was talking about the fact that uh, geraniums in the window and um, stonecutters cut it on stone were not in the show. And I'll admit that they are uh, sad omissions because uh, they're both terrific pieces of material. I will say that if you don't know Carousel, you won't miss them. But frankly, um, there were other cuts that I thought were more injurious. And Mm. one was the fact that um, Billy had a scene originally where he tells Julie he will go to the Clambake after all. And she is so excited because he has been so moody about the fact he doesn't want to be with people because when he's with people, he feels inferior because they're working and he's not. And um, he just wants to be by himself. But now that he has agreed to be part of this robbery, which will take place on the island where the Clambake will take place, well, he's going to go to the Clambake and she takes it as he's coming out of his shell and won't this be wonderful. So we feel very bad uh, from dramatic irony that we know what he's planning and she doesn't. So that's one injurious cut. Uh, Another, um, I think, that is uh, just as bad is the fact that before the robbery, there's a scene that uh, Hammerstein wrote where Billy and Jigger gamble. And by the time they finish gambling and we get the impression that um, Jigger has cheated – Billy will actually do the crime and not make a penny from it because he owes all the money he would have made to Jigger. So that's rather pathetic, too. And I feel very bad that we don't have those scenes. Okay, aside from that, and I'll admit that's substantial, but aside from that, this is a terrific revival, really sensational. And um, I was really thrilled by everything that was on stage. Now, one of the things I heard, too, that was a problem was the fact that there really wasn't a carousel. There is a top to the carousel, but you don't see the standard uh, poles and horses that you usually see. But there was a reason for this as well. And that was the fact that um, there is one horse and Billy puts Julie on it. So it it actually is a way of indicating that this is a very special thing for Billy, that uh, for him, nothing else exists but Julie at that point in time. So I think that's a very actually a, a very smart move that Jack O'Brien made. Much has also been made of the fact that Justin Peck, who did the choreography, made an enormously long number out of Blow High, Blow Low. Didn't strike me as that. Now, it 
indeed it could have been shortened during previews. I have no idea whether it was or wasn't. But what I thought was terrific in this number is the fact that Billy dances in it. But he really doesn't because he stinks at it. He's a terrible dancer. And it's a wonderful way of showing that if indeed Billy wanted to be part of this world to go to sea, and he considers it. He considers leaving Julie and going to sea and being a free man again, not having to worry about anything, the carefree life, being with all the guys, all that kind of stuff. That if he wanted to, he couldn't. This man has one talent. He's a one-trick pony. He's a good carousel barker. That's what he can do. And if he can't do that, he doesn't want to do anything and he, because he knows he wouldn't be good at it. And that comes out in the choreography. So I think that's a magnificent, magnificent thing. Well, I think the cast uh, really is top-notch. Uh, Joshua Henry really has a wonderful, booming voice and does extraordinarily well by what I considered to be the greatest moment in musical theater history, the soliloquy. I remember thinking that when I was in high school, I made a list of um, the best songs in musicals. At that point, I'd only heard about a hundred of them and soliloquy was number one. In a way, I'm sorry to say that in all those years, and believe me, there have been plenty of them, that I haven't found anything to top the soliloquy, but nevertheless, um, let the chips fall where they may. I do think this is the greatest thing that has ever happened to musical theater and Joshua Henry does it extraordinarily well, I'm, I'm delighted to say. Jesse Mueller's wonderful too, uh, really bringing a lot of texture to Julie. When um, Carrie says to her, you're a queer one, Julie Jordan, Indeed, she looks up and says, you're right, you know, I know it, I, I know I'm an odd uh, person. Uh, and there is a moment that I will never forget, I know as long as I live, and that is the fact in If I Loved You, the famous bench scene as it's called, um, there's a moment where she's just looking at him and suddenly she comes out with a look of love. Her face transforms from listening to love right at the end that I can really understand why he completely abandons his life for her at that moment in time with the look she gives him. It's extraordinary. Lindsay Mendez, wonderful as Carrie. You know, um, in the famous 1994 revival where Audra Ann McDonald got her start, that's what she was known as then, um, there was a wonderful moment in, uh, well, Mr. Snow, here I am. She threw herself on her back on the... Um, ground and spread her legs wide and her arms wide as if say, come get me. Lindy Mendez has to use, say that line too, of course, uh, sing it, of course, and she does twice. Uh, that's the way the show is written. And she comes up with completely different um, interpretations of it each time. And both are really quite wonderful. So I think that's uh, terrific as well. Renee Fleming, uh, it's so wonderful when you see an opera singer uh, take on a musical theater role, if the person acts it, and she does. But the point is, it's so wonderful that uh, the singing is so effortless to her because because, of course, the musical comedy demands are not nearly as, as much as the opera demands. She doesn't look as if she's slumming up there. She looks like she's having quite a wonderful time during June is busting out all over. And certainly has um, uh, the chops and the emotion to do You'll Never Walk Alone, which is really quite wonderful as well. The person I really would recommend uh, for um, a featured actress award uh, in any one of the awards this year who really, really impressed me beyond belief was Margaret Colan as Mrs. Mullins. And she gets the show off to a pretty dramatic start because, after all, she has her designs on Billy. She is his employer, and she doesn't want him to forget it, and he wants to forget it. And he really feels like he's the type of person who won't take anything from anybody, and it costs him dearly. But she is a powerhouse, so I really thought that was um, a wonderful performance. I loved Alexander 
to Gemignani too um, as um, Mr. Snow, who really had tremendous um, authority and um, uh, a, a need for success that um, certainly was realized. John Douglas Thompson, one of our finest actors, <clears throat> a case can be made that he's wasted in the part of the Starkeeper because it's not much of a part. I guess they wanted to have him on stage more, so they had him uh, like looking uh, over the proceedings much of the show. He would come on and see what was happening to Billy and feel bad for him um, <clears throat> whenever he was making a tremendous mistake. But um, I also have to talk about Garrett Haw. Now, that's a name that uh, many people don't yet know, but he plays Enoch Snow Jr. <laughs> there was a, when he tells Carrie, I'm sorry, when he tells uh, Louise, uh, the offspring of uh, Billy and Julie, uh, the one who didn't turn out to be my boy Bill, but turned out to be my little girl. <laughs> this moment he says, you know, my, my father wouldn't let me marry beneath my station. There was an expression on his face at that moment in time that looked exactly like the expressions we see Donald Trump give. And I, <laughs> so <laughs> it's incredible to me. I've seen that expression so many times on the news before I shut it off. And um, it, so I want to mention Garrett Hawes. So uh, when you start mentioning people who have tiny, tiny parts like that, you really know it's a terrific revival. Sure, I miss what's not there. Yes, indeed. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if they kept it as it was? Sure. But boy, what is there is certainly choice. All right, Michael, what did you think? Well, I would say I strongly agree with about half of what Peter said and strongly disagree with the other half. But one point that needs to be made at the beginning is that uh, one could say that real-life upstaged theater during the Saturday, April 14th matinee performance of Carousel, which is the performance that Peter and I and James caught uh, – the show was stopped not once but twice for medical emergencies. The first time was only about three or four minutes in um, to the opening sequence, the the, the, the carousel waltz sequence. Uh, I the first time I became aware of anything was going on was the the stage manager or whoever got on the god mic and said, "We have to stop. We have a medical emergency." Um, the house lights came up. There was an old, an older fellow that I, I could see. He was not far from me uh, who had apparently collapsed uh, to the floor. He was in an aisle seat and he collapsed to the floor. Uh, and then he uh, they, they got to him and ministered to him and he was taken out on a wheelchair. Uh, I heard afterwards, uh, you know, who knows if it's true, that the person had had heart surgery recently. So maybe oh. there was some kind of um, mm. reaction to that. Um and then the second time, it was really incredible. It was in the second act, right after Billy kills himself and Julie is uh, is speaking to him over his dead body. And at that point, I heard noises in back of me like somebody choking. Uh, yeah. People started shouting um, uh, uh, for, for the house lights to be brought up. And in that case, it was it – would, again, I could see the person. It looked like a young – uh, a young man, uh, a very young man, maybe a teenager, maybe even younger, uh, and he seemed to have some medical condition because of the type of glasses he was wearing. And also, I think, uh, I believe his mother had a, an uh, an oxygen mask at the seat with her before. Oh. You know, so it may have been asthma or something. I, I really don't know. I'm I'm just telling you what I saw. Uh, but that, you know, I mean, needless to say, the audience was. Uh, 
was really on edge. Um, and I turned to someone and I said, can you imagine what it's going to be like for Jesse Mueller to go into that speech mm-hmm. over Billy's dead body after, after we come back again? And, um, you know, we, we, that's what happened. And she's a thorough professional. So, uh, that Jesse Mueller is really amazing. And so she went right into it, but, it, uh, you know, I mean, it only heightened the scene and the song that comes immediately after it, after it, which is you'll never walk alone. Uh, my theater companion was sobbing during you'll never walk alone. And I'm sure that, um, that those interruptions had something to do with it. Um, I, uh, I, it, I was thinking, uh, Kind of what Peter said, if, if someone went into this never having seen Carousel before, I don't know if they would necessarily say, oh, I feel like something's missing. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry. It is a revival and shows do have histories. And I think a lot of the cuts are very disfiguring. Um, some that Peter didn't mention, there's the whole section of the, the, the beginning of um, – I guess what's normally the third scene of Act One, uh, give it where the ensemble women um, uh, are berating the uh, the guys uh, with "Give it to them good, Carrie, give it to them good," and, and Carrie up up upbraids the guys because uh, they're being annoying to you know when they're trying to get ready for the clam bake, um, and that whole section after that was cut where the guys sing. Now just a minute, ladies, you got no cause to fret. Huge, huge cut that I really missed, and because "Give it to them good, Carrie, give it to them good" was cut, we also missed the reprise of that phrase in act two when uh in after stone cutters cut it on stone which was also cut um people turn to julie uh to explain to carrie uh what, what they're saying about how uh um uh, you know, not, um, there's nothing so bad for a woman as a, ma- a man who's bad or good. Or good, right? Yes, and they and they uh, and they say, "Tell it to her good, Julie. Tell it to her good." And that is normally incredibly effective when you hear that because of the way it's been used in the first act, and now it's used in a completely different context in the second act, and it leads into. What's the use of wondering? Which is a beautiful, gorgeous song. Which, on this case, uh, on this occasion, in this performance, to me, it had very little emotional weight because it wasn't set up properly. Um, I completely agree about the cutting of the scene after soliloquy. I think all of that, uh, that little byplay between Billy and Julie, is very, very necessary. Um, I, I thought that the blow high, blow low dance was extended beyond all reason uh i I did notice uh, that billy was in it and they were trying to make that point but it just seemed like it was too long for the uh you know in in relative to the rest of the show and it seemed to me to be completely honest that the main reason it was lengthened was to serve as a more of a showcase for amar ramasar who is a new york city ballet star who plays jigger um another uh example of um rewriting, uh, making changes to the show in order to give more of a showcase to someone is that uh, Renee Fleming was uh, first of all, she sang more than Nettie usually sings. She was given little lines of other songs and also um, optional high notes, trills and descants and I, you know, I mean, I understand why they did it, but I, I just I just thought they were really unnecessary and counterproductive and distracting. Um, 
Um, other weird changes and cuts. Uh, well, I, I thought the presence of the star keeper on stage, his silent presence in several sequences uh, before he ever said anything towards the end of act two, I thought it was distracting more than anything. It sounds to me like an idea that, that looks good on paper, but really didn't work. Um, I'm sorry they didn't cut it. Apparently there were other, (laughs) there were certain aspects of the start, the, the star keeper, or I'm sorry, I'm it's the heavenly friend, isn't it? Is that, it's a it's Starkeeper. Heavenly Friend is the person who tells Billy get up after he commits suicide. Yeah, but it's John Douglas Thompson. Well, uh, he's the Starkeeper. He's the Starkeeper. Oh, okay, and and he was the one who was who appeared yes. in those. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm sorry for my confusion. Yeah, I I felt uh, that overall it was distracting. Although it does sound like a, that it might have been a great idea. Um, I noticed uh, just very specifically that uh, a couple of lyric rewrites uh, uh, to reflect the fact that Joshua Henry, uh, as Billy, is a person of color. The original lyric in uh, If I Loved You is uh, when Billy's imagining what he would be like if he married Julie. He says, I can just see myself kind of scrawny and pale picking at my food, but in this case, pale was changed to frail. Uh, I wonder what person um, decided to change the Oscar Hammerstein word. It, it didn't really bother me, but, uh, but I, of course I noticed it. And then in um, Soliloquy, uh, Billy originally sings My Little Girl, pink and white as peaches and cream is she, but here it was sweet and light as peaches and cream. Uh, and uh, then they kept the pink and white for the next line. She has a few pink and white young fellows of two or three. Um, the I don't know why they cut the line. Uh, they changed the line. There's a line that normally gets a, a huge laugh in Act Two, where uh, Enoch says to Carrie, "You'd think a woman with nine children would have more sense." And she says, "If I had more sense, I wouldn't have nine children." Here it was changed to, "You'd think a woman with so many children would have more sense," and it was the change was enough to cause the audience to really not find it very funny at all. I, I suppose that was some reaction against the idea of uh, women being broodmares, uh, you know, and that it's really, uh, that it's really onerous on a woman to be made to have nine children and that it's not funny, but I, I don't know. I guess that's why they changed it. Uh, what else? Um, Jonathan Tunick's new orchestrations were lovely as one might expect, but I didn't think they were as good as the originals by Don Walker and uh, Trudy, uh, Trudy Rittman's dance music were, was changed greatly also and not improved. Um, I thought Jack O'Brien's direction was very problematic and uh, confused and diffident overall. I, I felt like the, the hot button issues um, were actually played down because they were afraid of them. I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like the, um, the wife-beating thing was, was – as effective as it's been in previous productions. And I think maybe that's why, because they were so afraid of it. Um, And of course, that famous line has been cut, uh, the famous exchange between Louise and her mother about, is it possible for someone to hit you really hard and not hurt at all? Um, So one would say, you know, that that line should be in there no matter what. Uh, Some people may disagree. Um, I I thought Lindsay Mendes was excellent. 
and I think that her voice is very malleable. I had never uh, really seen her sing, uh, doing that kind of a role. I thought she was a complete success in it. Uh, to me, Paul Gemignani was uh, Alex Gemignani, excuse me, <laughs> Alex Gemignani, son of Paul, uh, was he was very flat. I, I, I that character normally, Mr. Snow, uh, normally functions as a comic character. And I, I just didn't think he seemed that funny. Um, uh, let's see. There was a bit of gratuitous shirtlessness, I thought, for Billy and Jigger. Um, that didn't really make any sense for them to be shirtless at that point, although they both look great. So maybe, I guess that's why it was done. Um, I had uh, I remember that the uh, the Lincoln Center revival of Carousel, which generally w- uh, was considered a triumph. Uh, but I and some other people at the time said that. It was uh, you would be watching it and, and things would happen and you would say, oh, that's a really interesting, great idea. And then it would be followed by something uh, where you said, oh, that doesn't work at all. And why did they they do that? And that's very counterproductive. I, I think that's the same. Uh, that same is true of this production. But there was much more for me of the of the, the negative. And I. Um, I can only repeat that if you have never seen it, it is still Carousel or most of Carousel, uh, despite those huge disfiguring cuts. Um, so you will still see it as a masterpiece. And uh, this, this, uh, the marketing for this production at one point, I'm not sure if it still does, says calls Carousel the greatest musical of the 20th century. Uh, an argument can certainly be made in, in that respect, but I just think there were too many cuts and changes in this production for someone to be able to fully judge that. So uh, I have to agree more with Michael than with Peter on this. Um, the uh, cuts that were made, uh, I'm unsure of why they were made if it was made to streamline and tell a better story which i didn't think it was successful at i didn't think i don't know if the cuts were made to cut down the the actual running time of the show as audiences Mm -hmm. attention span gets less and less uh but i don't think so and you know what we should note that even with the two uh occasions of the the show stopping twice during the performance we still i i check my uh phone when we got out and i think it was still about only about eight minutes uh shy of three hours so if we stopped for an extra 15 minutes um the show was well within uh you know well within the three hour mark and hadn't would not be in danger of running into overtime anyway um the print they the they are publicizing that the show is two forty five with one one intermission uh which I think that still audiences are still antsy after two fifteen or so um but my point was was that even with these cuts, then they added these huge dance numbers in uh and I disagree with adding Billy into blow high blow low it it really annoyed me. Uh, I, I can see what Peter's point was there, and uh, and I have to think about that more. But I, I think that I had a very different view than Jack O'Brien and Justin Peck. Uh, I really didn't see the choreography as moving the story story forward. Yeah, I thought it. Uh, I thought the choreography was like, "Look at us, we're great dancers," which they are. 
Absolutely. But yeah. it didn't move the story forward. And adding that huge thing into Blow High, Blow Low, I was, aside from adding Billy in, there was a huge dance number that had nothing to do with these guys being semen. Uh, and uh, Amar uh, Ramasar, is that how you say his name? Yeah. Uh, I, did you, I, I, I was like, is he marking? It didn't seem like he was dancing full out for somebody who was such a such a an acclaimed dancer. Uh, the oh, star interesting. Keeper, the star I thought you, thing, yeah. No, I thought you were going to say. I, I thought you were going to say in terms of acting, and I was just going to say that he, you know, he probably, presumably doesn't have that much experience in that. Yeah. No. Um, and uh, let me ask both of you guys. I felt like the tempos were very fast, and I wasn't sure if they were. It was a two-show day, and they were trying to get through the shows or pick up the energy or something like that. But I felt as though that many of the acting moments needed a, a beat, especially in the bench scene. Uh, and the bench scene happened just after the first emergency uh, uh, pause. So I didn't know if the tempos got picked up there to kind of make up the 10 minutes lost there or, or what happened mm-hmm. there. How did you guys feel about the tempos? Did you notice anything or was it just me? I didn't notice anything different. I thought there there were times when uh, the tempos of the music and even the dialogue seemed rushed. I, I thought the pacing was off at several points. So anyway, the long and the short of it is, is I think it's an, it's an amazing cast and it's a must-see. I'm very sad about the cuts and the needless choreography, but go see mm. it. I think it's it's really, really well uh, worth anybody's time. It's still carousel. Ironically, uh, as I'm sure you may have read, there there was a um, uh, a battle recently to get Agnes DeMille's name in in the playbill as the original choreographer. Um, in many productions of Carousel, her choreography is recreated, not in this one. And and I have to say, I'm not sure if she saw this, if she had wanted, if she would have wanted her name in there, even even though it makes clear that it's, you know, it's his original choreography. But presumably, you know, that that's there to to reflect that she, um, you know, had a part in, in really creating this piece from the beginning uh so who knows if how she would have felt but i don't know if she i i don't think she would have minded if her name was left out in this case by the way speaking of agnes demille mm. uh, <clears throat> do you know who the original mrs mullins was i mean the original mrs mullins vivian vance now you might say wait 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 wait, wait. oh I, I'm looking at the credits. Vivian Vance was not the original Mrs. Mullen. In fact, she was. What had happened was is Ruben Mamoulian directing Carousel cast her. And then he said to Agnes DeMille, Agnes, I've cast um, Vivian Vance as Mrs. Mullen. She says, you are not having her in the show. She was in a show I did before. Um, I, uh, boy, I forget the name of it. Anyway, um, she was in a show I did before, and she was terrible in terms of sleeping around with everybody to make her part bigger oh. so um, you are not having her in the show and that's all there is to it and Ruben said okay so uh, so Vivian Vance um, whose future was certainly ahead of her um, may have been discouraged that moment in time but uh, it did turn out to be alright for her but uh, it would have been uh, interesting to see if uh, she had played the part if she would have gotten good reviews if people would have noticed her etc cetera, etc cetera. but anyway 
I wonder if anyone shared that bit of history with Margaret Cullen or if she looked it up. <laughs> I, I, so I think I, it was hold, I do, but it was hold on to your hats. Hold on to your hats. I think. Yeah, is, was that it? Hooray um, for what with Kate Thompson? It, it might have been that. Um, I hold on to your hats. Was that um, is that mentioned in what you're looking at? Um, I am looking at an article by a young people oh, militia. See. Oh, I see. In nineteen ninety-eight. Okay. Well, then by well the twentieth anniversary uh, of that. Yes, indeed. Uh, the kids will have off from school tomorrow. Anyway. <laughs> um, so it was. It was what? Hooray for what? Is that what you said? It says uh, next she became an understudy for Kate Thompson in Hooray for What, and she appeared in the chorus. Here she locked horns with Agnes DeMille, who felt that Vance and other Corines were romancing their producers and backers, that it didn't feel that they had to give it all or they had to be protected. Sparks flew, but it was DeMille who who was canned during the rehearsals. Right, in that other show, right. Yeah, Yeah. certainly not. Right, right, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... (laughs) All right, let's uh, move forward into our next uh, set of reviews. The three of us got a chance to see Mean Girls. So, Michael, why don't you start us off with the Mean Girls? Oh, sure, I can start. I don't have that much to say. I uh, had not seen the film until somebody gave me a copy of it um, a few months ago, and and I enjoyed it very much. This is the latest uh, screen to Broadway musical transfer, um, book by Tina Fey, uh, music by Jeff Richmond, uh, who is her husband, and lyrics by Nell Benjamin. Uh, and this is at the August Wilson Theater, um, directed and choreographed by Casey Nicola. And I think that this show, I enjoyed it far more than I, than I thought I would. I think it would have been much better if it was just less relentless um, in terms of uh, two things, uh, the volume, well, more than two things, the volume was way too high, but I feel that about almost every show. So let me just mention that uh, in passing. Um, The amount of music and lyrics uh, is astounding. It's this, it's times you feel like the show is almost sung through. Um, And I think that's pretty ironic because uh well uh, you know it is based on a movie and it and it does have a script by Tina Fey so you might have thought that they would have uh highlighted that more and i just felt like there were no levels uh almost no levels in this show not until way into act 2 does someone sing anything remotely like a ballad uh but Throughout the rest of it, it's all so frenetic and high, high, high energy and high volume. And the choreography is uh, is very extensive and, and very big and almost never stops. And I, you know, I mean, some of these people like Tina Fey, uh, they, they do not have experience with Broadway musicals. But Casey Nicola certainly does. Um, I, I I wonder if he... If he uh, agrees um, at, at all with what I'm saying, I wonder if he attempted to um, get the writers to add levels, uh, because I think that's a that's a really big problem here. And I and I so wish um, that they had done that, because overall, I, I think they did a wonderful job. I I think uh, 
that it was probably not that easy to musicalize this story, but Jeff Richmond, uh, working with Nell Benjamin, who who does also, who also has uh, Broadway cred, um, I I thought that they wrote an excellent score. It's very catchy, very clever. Um, the lyrics that I could hear, um, because you know, uh, as opposed to those I couldn't hear because the volume was so high and so distorted, I I think they were excellent and. Um, I think this could be a good songwriting team to continue on in the future. Um, so I, um, I, I thought that the cast uh, was really superb, and and um, they all, e- even if they may not actually be um, high school age, they certainly have that youthful energy and and brio, and and so uh, they they all deserve great praise. We have Barrett Wilbert. Weed, um, who was well known from another uh, uh, young people's musical, Heather's, uh, but she plays Janice. Erica Henningsen is Katie. Uh, Carrie Butler is Mrs. Heron uh, and other adult roles. Um, Taylor Louderman is Regina George. Ashley Park is Gretchen Wieners. Kate Rockwell, Karen Smith. Um, Cheech Mano- Manahar. I'm sorry, Cheech Manahar is Kevin Jupur, and Kyle Selig is Aaron Samuels. Um, I, I thought they were all really great, and it, uh, I, I just think it's – I won't even say it's a near miss because it's, it's so enjoyable. But I, it, to me, this is one of those cases where it, it's very obvious, very, very obvious how the show could have made, been made much better. All right, Peter, what did you think? Well, um, I think if you're the type of person who says, I never want to go back to high school, that you're not <laughs> going to have much fun at this show uh, because that's what it is. Um, it'll take you all back to the time when they were those cliques, the bullying, the ostracizing, the jealousy, the need to re- uh, wear the right clothes, uh, the wheel of fortune nature of teen friendships. And believe me, Tina Fey is just getting started when she started. Well, I mean, she's not because, of course, she did that 2004 uh, movie. But um, I do believe this is uh, going to be an enormous hit, um, not just on Broadway, but my, can you imagine how many high schools are going to do this show in the future? Oh, gosh. No, uh, yeah, I mean, really, um, I, I did a, a count on this. There are 17 songs and one reprise. 31 girls are asked to take part in those 17 songs. Nine boys are. And um, one of the nine boys, Damien, uh, the pudgy gay lad, um, gets five of them. So uh, it doesn't rely very much on boys, even though you would think in a high school musical uh, the, the romance would be uh, at the fore. Of course, that is part of the plot. But um, so I, I do think that um, it was sad that uh, Tina Fey thought that this was a a certain line was very funny Uh, and she gave it to Katie. Katie is the girl who is living in Kenya and when her parents tell her, listen, we're moving back to the United States and um, you're going to be going to school there. And and this is a very good setup because all of us know what it's like uh, to be the new kid in town and going in where everybody is laughing and having a good time in the corridors and we don't know anybody that we've all had that experience. So we can all relate to that. But I thought it was terrible that when um, 
her parents said to her that we're moving to America, she said, maybe I can meet an obese person. I, I don't think hunger in Africa should be a subject for comedy. So I thought that was mm. Um, mm. Uh, an unfortunate line. So um, I didn't like that at all. I think the lyrics are sensational. This Delt Medjamin is, I think, really a terrific talent. And I am very glad that she's writing for Broadway. Um, now, there's a scene in the movie where um, Katie remembers her first so-called boyfriend. And that is um, a situation where, um, you know, when when girls uh, five, six years old have a boyfriend, quotation marks around boyfriend, of course, um, it's just, <laughs> the, the boys aren't interested. And um, one of the situations here is that uh, we hear that the boy ran away. And what's mentioned is, and you know how fast those kids in Kenya can run. Because, you know, Kenyans always seem to win the uh, the marathons we hear about. So I thought that was a wonderful <laughs> perception. Um, I agree the music is, is um, certainly substantial because many composers from the rock world who come to Broadway simply write melodies that appeal to them without thinking of what the character would actually sound like. And I thought Jeff Richman uh, wisely realizes that, musically speaking, one size does not fit all. So there's texture to uh, that. I admired very much Kerry Butler, uh, who doesn't just double but triple. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the audience didn't realize that she was doing three roles. They might have seen that she was... Um, uh, the mother to Katie and Regina. Regina George is the villainess of the piece. She's the one who runs the plastics. Um, I don't think they call themselves that. I think it's uh, Damien who calls them that. And um, But anyway, um, she, she has her click, and getting in is not easy to do, though she does allow uh, Katie to come into it. Well, um, so Carrie Butler plays both the mother of Katie and Regina, but she also plays the math teacher, and uh, she's so terrific there that I, I have a feeling some people won't notice her. When she's playing Regina's mother, which is a situation where his woman says, I'm still young and hip, damn it. Um, <laughs> so she, Faye gave her a series of funny lines uh, that in a mini speech, and I'm telling you, if she'd given her a few more, uh, Carrie Butler would have received exit applause. At the performance I attended, in fact, a few people tried to give her that and didn't catch because it wasn't long enough. But uh, I wish that she'd given her a little bit more. Um, so um, I liked uh, her quite a bit. I, I have to say I didn't like um, our leading lady very much and um, because um, I thought – I complained uh, a couple of weeks ago about um, Patty Murin in Frozen and saying how she incessantly smiled. Well, I won't say that um, – She's been dethroned as the smiler on Broadway, but Henningsen, uh, Erica Henningsen, gets the silver medal for smiling because, in fact, there's a scene where she shows up at a costume party. And has anybody noticed that Nell Benjamin has not written two musicals where costume parties have been um, an, an issue? Because in Legally Blonde, there's one as well. But anyway, um, I, I was thrilled in the costume party scene because she shows up as a zombie with ugly false teeth, but at least I didn't see her smiling anymore. So I like that um, quite <laughs> a bit that I didn't have to endure that uh, anymore. Um, so uh, my big problem with the show is the problem that the movie had as well. 
Katie decides to sabotage Regina by giving her protein bars, saying these will help you lose weight, where in fact they will help you gain weight. Um, She doesn't tell her that, of course. And um, Regina starts eating them and gains weight. And she doesn't understand why she's gaining weight. No, 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 no. Um, Regina is the type of person who's suspicious of anybody. And as a result, she would definitely put two and two together why she's two sizes larger than she used to be. Now, in the movie, it is very well established that these bars come from Africa. And indeed, they have writing on them, a different language, so that Regina cannot understand what the, what's on the label and therefore um, there's no thing about calories or anything like that. So she takes it at face value. Again, I find that very hard to believe. But at least it's established that there's foreign writing on the label. And as a result, she doesn't know what she's eating. But that isn't even made clear in the musical. And I think it's, it's a, an omission that really should – we're talking about cuts and carousel. I think that cut um, there was uh, an injurious one. But still, she's too smart for this. It wouldn't happen. It's also better in the movie uh, when she finds out from a football player who sees the bars and said, oh, yeah, the coach tells us to eat those to gain weight. That huh. doesn't happen in the musical. It's a, it's a much more clunky way that she finds out. But still – I think she should infer on her own. She's too smart a girl because then she goes into a big um, thing to to help destroy Katie. So, I mean, this this lady um, knows about revenge. And so she's she's too smart to just be taken in by this when she's gaining weight. Why is it that she wasn't gaining weight before she started eating these bars? I mean, come on. So um, I think that's a really big flaw in this show. So um, I don't like that at all. What was really wonderful to hear bear with me on this because it's going to sound like this is um not going to turn out to be so good when i start uh karen smith a uh, character in the show sings a lyric that objectifies women there would have been a time when it would have received a hearty laugh now it barely gets a nervous one but when karen then thinks twice and corrects herself the torrent of applause and the whoops of approval kicked in from that teenage audience so Mean Girls ultimately shows that it has its values in the right place. So the target audience, the teen girls, can profit from it. But it mm. did show me how far we have come, that um, the teen girls did not take um, to any of the things involving the fact that Katie dumbs herself down to be attractive to Aaron, figuring that uh, the man has to see, believe he's smarter or else he won't, he'll be threatened by you, he won't be interested in you. All that stuff doesn't play in the way that it would have 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. It wouldn't have happened um, in, in the same way as playing now. It would have gotten hearty laughs. Not now. Good. Good. Um, but again, uh, the lyrics here I, I think are really uh, very nice, um, especially when Katie sings at the end of the show, I was offered bad choices. And she lets us believe, and, and she's letting us down too, that she's going to absolve herself easily. But she redeems herself, says, but I could have said no. And I think that's really quite nice that she does that. Um, so, uh, by the way, uh, a small thing, but in the costume party scene, somebody's dressed as Abe Lincoln. And I think that's wishful thinking. I don't think kids today would dress as Abe Lincoln for a costume party. Maybe they would, but I don't think so. <laughs> uh, I think that's a little um, too. But they um, dress as Alexander Hamilton these days. 
<laughs> that would be fine. <laughs> I'd go with that in a second. But uh, not Abe Lincoln. Um, it's been a long time since young Abe Lincoln was produced off Broadway. So I don't think that uh, <laughs> they're paying attention to that. Um, the best lyric, I think, of all was when um, Katie's mother um, talks about what it's like to be a mother, that when you have a child, you'll be worshipped for years and then she'll turn three. (laughs) 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 I think it lasts a little longer than that, to be fair. But nevertheless, it is true that there is a time when your kids think you're the sun and the moon and then they think you know nothing. So I think that's... uh, uh, (laughs) The costumes are uh, wonderfully hilarious and... um, I really also have to applaud Carrie Butler for being able to walk on the highest of high heels. And uh, the shoes in the show are amazing to watch. So don't uh, get those first row orchestra seats unless, you know, they do them at uh, a lottery discount. I don't know, they might. The set is simply a hop circle of cinder blocky type stuff representing a high school. But the projections are phenomenal. Really good. Um, I really like when we go to the mall and uh, you see the names of the stores and one of the, uh, one of the restaurants was called Borderline Seafood. Would you want to go there? I, mean, <laughs> I think that's a problem. So anyway, anyway, um, certainly this is not uh, the musical theater I grew up with, but certainly it's the musical theater of today. And uh, it's going to bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people for a long, long time. I still hope the band's visit wins uh, Best Musical in the Tony race. But uh, if this were to happen, that Mean Girls were to pull what might be considered an upset, I don't know. I think Mean Girls is going to ultimately do much, much, much better business than the band's visit um so uh and money often talks with the tonys so and that famous thing about uh what's a good show to tour uh mean girls are certainly going to be bigger on tour than the band's visit ever would be so uh so we may see mean girls winning the tony and again you know who knows uh <laughs> whoever knows but uh but in many ways a very worthwhile experience did you know that the uh, the borderline seafood thing was a uh, take on legal seafood, a restaurant chain? Uh, that's what I assumed. That's what I assumed yeah. when they're, all, all of the it. all of the things that they show that showed up there were twists on other popular mall type of restaurants. I'm very embarrassed about this because I come from the Boston area where legal seafood started. So, uh, yeah, uh, I didn't catch that at all. I was amused by the store that was um, the clothing store that was labeled one, three, five. Now, I wouldn't have gotten the joke had I not seen the movie in advance where they talk about the fact that uh, the girls, uh, uh, Regina goes into the store to buy a a dress. And unfortunately, she's neither. uh, She's one, three or five in dress size. She's gotten bigger and uh, and she's horrified when the clerk says to her i think you should go to sears well i'm <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, uh that line's not in the show and it, uh, we, you can't have everything of course but uh, but no i didn't catch the legal seafood and i'm terribly embarrassed by it <laughs> so uh i had a very good time at this show i thought it was very funny i thought it was a great cast uh, i couldn't see them casting it anymore uh, I, I couldn't see anybody, you know, being better for these roles. Uh, I'm sure that other will come in and replace and be just as good. But I had a very good time. The interesting part was I either don't recall the movie or I don't think maybe there's a chance I didn't. I have never seen the movie. Um, but my wife is a big fan of the movie. 
And she was not as excited about this show as I was. Mm. She, she and uh, and so I don't know if that will blow back the audience when I was there. Seemed to be you know in the same uh, genre as the SpongeBob audience having been in on every joke and knew every line in the movie and were very enthusiastic and sometimes over-enthusiastic. Uh, but I, I think uh, everything that you, that both of you have said is, is true there. And I, I, I hadn't even considered the way in which this is going to play in subsidiary markets such as uh, high school and other regional performances uh, being done many years down the road or even the national tour surely exactly as you said this is going to sell better than better than a um a band's visit tour but um yeah those are very 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 good points peter i hadn't thought specifically about it being done in high school but you, you high schools but you're so right and by the way um uh, Kyle Selig, who plays Aaron Samuels, I guess the, the main love interest in this, was a winner of two, in 2010 of the Jimmy Award. Oh, uh, oh really? The oh. National High School Theater Excellent Award. Excellent point. So, oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad you brought that up, Michael. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I think that uh, what I'm most excited about, what I came out of this thinking was that I really felt like the lyrics were incredible. I felt the music was not. Uh, I thought that it w- wasn't bad, but it wasn't like I, I couldn't really hum its tune right now from from Mean Girls. But I'm really excited for the next project because yeah. they have now done something that I think is very very good. And the next thing, let's hope it's even better. I'm I'm excited, you know to have Tina Fey and and the whole uh, creative team there involved in what's coming next. Could be, but let's not forget that Nell Benjamin is married to a very successful composer, Lawrence O'Keefe, who wrote Bat Boy. Yeah. Right. I don't remember if he's working on the musical version of Dave, the movie in which Kevin Klein is uh, pressed into service as president of the United States. Um, but um, that's that supposedly is coming. And it's a very nice property, Dave, um, a very moving um, story. So uh, we'll see if um, if uh, Mr. Uh, Jeff and uh, Ms. Nell uh, continue working together, or if this was just a one-off, and, and if she'll <laughs> return to her husband. We didn't actually mention this, but but Lawrence O'Keefe and Nell Benjamin wrote the score for Legally Blonde. Right. Uh, yeah. So so they have <laughs> they have a history with the, these, this they kind do. of a show too. And isn't it time that Encore's Off Center did a Bat Boy? Mm. Oh, good idea. Good idea. Yeah, good for you. All right. So let's uh, talk about other people pressed into service as we all saw Harry Connick Jr. in Paper Mill Playhouse's production of The Sting, which is rumored to be coming to Broadway. So, Peter, why don't you get us started on The Sting? If it only had a heart. Um, You know, we are warned right from the opening uh, number that this is a story of deception, betrayal, and more. Um, But this story does follow the template of the the Oscar-winning movie, and uh, it isn't about good guys versus bad guys. It's about two bad guys against a worse one, really. Now, we rooted for the con men in the original film, 
mostly because of the casting. Uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, uh, who were the most charismatically handsome actors of their generation, respectively played um, Sharpies, Harry Gondorf, and Johnny Hooker. Now, audience had come to love them in 1969 um, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And uh, there they played robbers as well. And um, everybody was very sad at the end of the picture that they died. It was one of those, this was the era of Bonnie and Clyde where you were rooting for the bad guys. So anyway, four years later, now here they are again, and we're really hoping that they're going to succeed because they were Paul Newman and Robert Redford. I think that was a real um, important factor, and that's why we glossed over the morality of it. Because what has happened is, is that Johnny Hooker, is, has been doing a lot of con men things with a partner named Luther. And unfortunately, one day they picked the wrong guy. And this is a guy who's working for uh, Doyle Lonigan, who's a, a real big uh, racketeer type. So Doyle Lonigan is going to take this lying down. So he is going to make sure that both these guys die. And he kills Luther first. And not he personally, but he arranges for Luther to be killed. Okay. So now he's going to go out for Johnny Hooker. Well, Johnny Hooker and Har- uh, Henry um, hook up together, and what they decide to do is to pull a con job on Doyle so that he'll lose a great deal of money, a half million dollars, in fact. And by the way, it's 1936, so that's a lot of money. So uh, that's what they're going to do. Now, you know, the thing is, um, this is a revenge story. And usually in revenge stories, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just telling you what revenge stories usually are. It's usually an eye for an eye. Given the fact that uh, (laughs) Luther was killed, um, you would think what they would be interested in is killing uh, Doyle. Uh, again, I am not advocating um, murder for murder, but what I am saying is usually this is what happens. So you might say, well, isn't it refreshing that here what's going on is they're going to um, steal money instead of killing him because that's going to really burn him uh, if they take a half million dollars in 1936 money. Well, yeah, but in a way what they're doing is, what they're saying is if you commit murder, you have to pay a fine. You know, and there's something about that. I think this show would be substantially better if after they get the money, and they do, if they gave it to the widow. I think that would be a very nice gesture. Um, it may be a little hard to believe. Okay, then give her some of the money. But the point is what they're doing at this moment in time is just getting money for themselves. Is that really avenging Luther's murder? I don't think so. Now, um, what we have here, of course, is one famous guy playing um, Henry, and that is Harry Connick Jr. And if you look closely at the program, I don't know if you noticed this. It took me a while to notice it. He also wrote some of the songs. I'm assuming, I don't know for sure, that he wrote some of the songs that he does. And not only does he sing... Not only does he dance a little, not only does he act, but he plays the piano as well. We all know that he can. You know, in so many shows, when somebody goes to a piano, you wonder if he's really playing. There's no question about it if you're on house right, because that's usually where he's sitting and where he's playing the piano. And so if you're in the rest of the house, what you're going to watch is a back of a man playing the piano. I truly believe one of the reasons the guitars became so popular Uh, They've had, what, a 60-year stranglehold on music, guitars? I mean, it became the instrument of choice in the 50s. I think it really happened partly because of television, that 
a guitar is a telegenic instrument that you can watch somebody's face while he's playing a guitar. With a piano, it's harder. You don't see the face. Um, you see the back. So, so I, so it's not very much fun for the rest of the house to have to deal with, um, watching, uh, the back of Harry Connick Jr. Now, some of the songs, I imagine he didn't write most of the songs and most of them were written by Mark Holman and Greg Cotis, um, the deservedly acclaimed creators of um, Urinetown, uh, which is on one of the great surprise hits of Broadway history. And if anybody wants to say, that sounds like hyperbole, I'll go to the mat for this. Who expects a show called Urinetown to be um, a success and be done? I've seen it in high schools. So anyway, they, they're very smart at the beginning to have a lyric where it says the evil that the depression creates, because that at least ex- excuses a little of why people are behaving the way they do. So, um, and I do think the music is very film noirish, and um, it's, it's funny. There's uh, um, one of the things that happens in the show is uh, people bet on a horse named Blue Note, and in fact, that's not the only Blue Note in the show because there are plenty of Blue Notes in the scores. So, um, but you know. When you really come down to it, gangsters aren't the type of people who sing. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, guys and dolls. Yeah, yeah, but those are cartoon characters, and there's not nearly as much at stake. There certainly isn't a half million dollars at stake. And besides, guys and dolls, romance is the big uh, issue of the day, um, whether or not uh, the two couples will get together. Here, there's a little bit of romance, and I mean a little bit, uh, but it's certainly not a main event. But gangsters, if you watch the movie of The Sting, these are tight-lipped guys. These are taciturn guys, because gangsters knew way back when that if you're silent, it's more menacing to the people you're dealing with, because they don't know what you're thinking. They, Because you don't know, you're in more fear, thinking that in any second, they might straighten you right out. So it's a big problem um, to have these people suddenly burst into song, especially in a card game song where Doyle Lonigan um, is suddenly very joyously singing this jolly song, which, by the way, leads into a very vulgar uh, song uh, that uh, Harry Connick takes over. Um, I didn't like it at all because it um, and anything you can think of that was vulgar uh, turned out to uh, be there. So... Um, I don't know if this is a natural musical uh, to begin with. And, um, and you know, things like card games never play well on stage. I mean, there's a previous musical that had a card game uh, that played the Paper Mill Playhouse. Honeymoon in Vegas came to Broadway, didn't do well. I'm not saying the card game was the reason why. But unless you're in the mezzanine balcony, um, you're not going to really see what's going on in the card game. So it's not a good idea to have a card game in a musical. They should have done something else. I think Bob Marden, is, uh, who did the book, has added a good number of gags. And most of them land very, very well. Um, so all in all, um, an okay show. Um, I, I wish I could say it had more potential, but again, I, I, I just don't know about, um, uh, singing gangsters. Uh, it doesn't seem right to me. So there you have it. <laughs> all right, Michael, what did you think of this? Uh, the singing, uh, and, and dancing gangsters didn't bother me so much. Um, and in fact, I was, uh, reminded of sugar, <laughs> the musical at some point during this. But, you know, I totally agree with Peter about uh, what he said about the um, the, the no heart and, and the, you know, all these people being common. I think that the story and I realize they're just recreating what was in the film, but I think the story uh, would be improved greatly if um, 
the Johnny Hooker character started out as an innocent guy. I mean, what we see here is, uh, you know, he, he's already a con man and we and we already see him uh, right at the beginning of the show involved in this failed con, which winds up uh with the death of Luther. Uh, but I think it would be much better if, if he were a victim in the beginning and then he became a con man uh, to get revenge. And that would have been OK because the person that, you know, that they're going after is is the villain uh, played by Tom Hewitt. Uh, so the the uh, Lonergan character. So does that sound like that might have been a yeah, better way to good go for you i agree entirely yeah i mean and you know i, I realize again yep. it, it's not the movie but i i think that that really would have been wonderful and i think that they also could have justified it because i have to say i think one of the best things about this show is uh, the way in which um the role of johnny hooker has been seamlessly rewritten and recreated uh to be played by an african-american and uh make no mistake it, it, it he is supposed to be that it, there are lines to the effect it's not just supposed to be a person of color uh being cast colorblind uh, in a in a white role uh so i i think that fits in beautifully with the with the period um and and the the setting uh so that is, I, I, did you have some comment on that? <laughs> you can feel me. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, the sad thing about that, and um, I'm going to put sad in, in um, uppercase letters, is that um, I don't think that he would have been treated the same way he's treated on stage um, as we see him because – People in those days, especially gangsters, um, I think wouldn't be tolerant of a black man and would treat him uh, in, uh, in to make him feel inferior. And there's none of that. They treat him as an equal, and that seems wrong to me for the period. I'm sorry to say. Oh, no, I, I – I... I understand what you're saying, and and certainly that is an issue when, when usually when this kind of casting occurs. I I guess it didn't bother me because there were references uh, from some of the characters to, you know, to, to the uh, to just what you're saying. I, I guess it wasn't the other gangsters who said it, but you know there were there were comments about uh, about the race thing. So uh, anyway, I, I I just thought it. It for the most part it worked really well, and I, I assume that maybe this was partly inspired by the fact that uh, um, the Sting, the, some of the most famous music um, in in the show, is from the movie and was originally written by Scott Joplin. Um, but anyway, I yeah I, I think that uh, Holman and, and Codis were a great choice for this because we we know very well from your in town that they can do pastiche brilliantly and that's basically what a lot of these songs are and i and i and i do not mean pastiche in a negative sense in at all i i think that this show sounds uh exactly the way it should uh it would be interesting to know which songs um, Harry Connick Jr. wrote. I, I think maybe it's not necessarily the ones that we would assume. I, I have uh, an acquaintance in the show, and um, I assumed that uh, the opening of Act Two, This Ain't No Song and Dance, was written by Harry, but I'm not, I'm not sure, unless I misunderstood uh, my friend, he, it was not. Uh, you would think that uh, some of the ones that are there to showcase him were written by him, uh, but maybe maybe some of the others were and i in act two i felt uh 
much more so than in Act One, that uh, it was being tailored. There were there was stuff that was tailored to showcase him as a as a uh, a piano player and a singer, uh, but but not in Act One so much. And I think uh, that Jay Harrison G or G as Johnny Hooker and Harry Connick as uh, Henry. I do think they had great chemistry, and there was some. It was uh, nice to see uh, some other friends in the cast, including Tom Hewitt, Kate Schindel, uh, Richard Klein, Christopher Gurr, um, and Drew McVetty, uh, and Janet DeCall in an interesting role as uh, the waitress Loretta. Uh, I think they got a very good cast here. It seems it seems clear that they have aspirations beyond Paper Mill. Um, so uh, I think that the director, John Rando, and uh, the choreographer, Warren Carlyle, basically did a really good job. And I don't know if it will uh, – if it does come to Broadway, I, I hope it doesn't uh, have the same fate as Honeymoon in Vegas. So we shall see. Uh, did either one of you? I, I don't recall hearing you mention the uh, earlier versions of the Sting with Steve Kazee. Not public, but he, he had workshopped it. I didn't mention it, and I, I guess I had forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I really enjoyed this uh, thing. I definitely thought that there were issues with it. Uh, there were issues with this th- with this production that I feel like. The, you know, we sort of are watching the out-of-town tryout of this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then the more I think about it, the more I wonder, uh, can it survive without Harry Connick Jr.? Um, because I, I'm a huge fan of Harry Connick Jr. I've been for 20 or more years or uh, a fan. And so I, I wonder if that really colored my enjoyment of this thing as a, as a if we took him out and put a another very talented actor in that place would have I enjoyed it as much? I, I I can't really answer that, but I think that if it came to Broadway with Harry Connick Jr., that it would do very well with Harry in the role, and then would it be able to play after Harry left? Um, sort of along the line of uh, Hugh Jackman in the. Uh, uh, what's the the boy from Oz? The boy from Oz, yeah, exactly. So, uh, I've been telling folks who are friends, uh, are friends, and that like Harry Connick to go see the say, paper, paper mill. I don't know if it's going to come to New York, but I think it will. But I think that it, I had a good time. There definitely are problems with it, and then I think that they will recognize those issues, and they got it up in front of an audience, and. As I told Matt Tamanini that the uh, after watching the show on the stage in front of me, I turned around and there was a show uh, in back of me as uh, lots of um, investors and Broadway producers were in the audience as well. Uh. So I, I think that I think that it probably will come in and people more people will have a chance to see this and hopefully they can uh, work on it and get it to a point where it can it can be something beyond what just a Harry Connick Jr. sort of vehicle. So, all right, uh, Michael, you saw Marilyn May uh, down at Feinstein's 54 Below. So uh, do you want to give us a a quick uh, recap on her? Yes, the great Marilyn May is celebrating her 90th birthday with uh, uh, several shows at Feinstein's 54 Below. I was 
very, very lucky um, to attend last night, Saturday, the 14th at 7 p.m. And uh, she is just a phenomenon. Uh, her voice is in amazing shape and her interpretive powers are better than ever, if that's possible. It was a wonderful program. Um, beginning with The Song Is You, uh, Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein uh, from Music in the Air, followed by a, a huge, fabulous uh, Cole Porter medley, let's see, uh, about eight songs by Cole Porter. That was a real tour de, tour de force. Um, other highlights of the program uh, included a song by someone else uh, who just turned 90. Charles Strauss, um, Marilyn sang, put on a happy face. So, and she didn't actually uh, mention the Strauss's birthday. So I'm not a hundred percent sure if she's aware of it. Um, but, uh, I just thought that was a really nice, uh, inclusion there. Uh, a beautiful highlight was a gorgeous rendition of the Rogers and Hart song, my romance from jumbo, um, with, uh, which Marilyn sang, uh, with a solo, uh, uh, bass accompaniment. Tom Hubbard on bass uh, was was bowing the bass and basically playing it as if more as if it were a cello, and that sounded absolutely beautiful. Uh, by the way, Ted Firth, a uh, conductor pianist, and I think did many of the arrangements, and Daniel Glass on the drums, um, and the rest the, the rest of the program was was equally thrilling. One, one uh, thing I have to mention is that Marilyn does one of her most requested songs is a. A song by Murray Grand and Alyssa Elise Boyd called Guess Who I Saw Today. And it's about a woman uh, who goes into town to shop and, and sees her husband with another woman. And then this is how she uh, confronts the husband when they're at home that night. Um, so it's always a hit and it's a great song. And she does it like a one act play. But what she did here um, is, and she's done this before, uh, she follows it up by saying, now this is the song that is sung by the woman in the bar. And then she sings 50% from Ballroom by Billy Goldenberg and Marilyn and Alan Bergman, and that is, of course, about a woman who is having an affair with a married man. So that um, that juxtaposition of those two songs is incredibly effective, and it's a hallmark of the the type of thought that goes into her act. She she really is a phenomenon. The the her entire engagement was sold out almost immediately. They added another one, uh, last one on April 29th. Uh, so if you have a shot at getting tickets, I would say uh, check that date and see if you can get in because it's it's just incredible. All right. So we're running very long, so let's jump directly into trivia. Michael, do you have an answer for last week's trivia? Yes. The question was, what piece of classical music has been heard in two Broadway shows this season? And the answer is Lasha Kiopianga, which is a concert aria by Handel. And it was uh, sung in both Farinelli and the King and Rocktopia. And I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't get any answers to this, so uh, nobody got it. Well, I think it's probably because our listeners don't go to Rocktopia. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, quickly, what's your question for next week? A smash hit play of the 19th century had a character whose first and last name we were told. He was repurposed into a smash hit musical of the 50s that separated those two names by a preposition. What was the 19th century play, the character's name, the 1950s musical, 
and the character's expanded name. Hmm. All right. If you have an answer to that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right path. So on behalf of Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. show my teeth when I am smiling. I only say I love you when I'm sure. Inside my gentle paws, I've got some devastating claws, and I'm learning what it means to really roar. When all the cubs grew up and we were spread around the earth, I found one day that I'd grown very sick. My bones were filled with holes, my belly hung in rolls, and I was bald where once my mane was thick. I slept and was ashamed, I was quiet, I was tamed, then they came and stayed and helped me heal inside. Though I had to learn once more to be a lion without a roar, it's not the roar that makes the lion, it's the pride. I always show my teeth when I am smiling, I always Inside my gentle paws, I've got some devastating claws, and I'm learning what it means to really roar. I always show my teeth when I am smiling. I always say I love you when I'm sure. Inside my gentle paws, I've got some devastating claws, and I'm learning.